Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 42, Awakening Asia. In what seems to be becoming something of a theme for this show, I'd like to take this week to discuss a topic that, while it is indisputably a part of Japanese history, is also very much a part of world history. It's a great example of how a seemingly local event can reverberate across the entire world and become a rallying cry for a huge number of causes. This week we're going to go over the story of the Russo-Japanese War, but we're going to be looking at it from a very different angle. We're going to talk about the effect Japan's greatest victory in the 20th century had on the rest of the non-Western world. But first we have to set the stage. In the 1800s, the world saw what can easily be described as the most massive shift in the global balance of power ever to occur. In the year 1800, Europe, under the influence of the reforms and reorganization of the Enlightenment, was growing steadily more powerful, but it was not yet unchallengeable. In Asia, the Ottoman Empire, while not the unstoppable titan it had once been, still had a powerful hold over the Middle East and North Africa. China, meanwhile, was coming down from the peaceful golden ages of the Kangxi, Yongzheng, and Qianlong emperors, under whom China attained its largest territorial scope ever, and whose reign saw a level of prosperity that was arguably not equaled until the very recent past. India, meanwhile, was already a dependence of Great Britain, but retained nominal independence. Its ruler, the Mughal Emperor, was a British client who could more or less do as he pleased so long as he did not directly contradict the wishes of his British masters. However, this balance was beginning to shift very rapidly. As the gains of empire began to snowball, by 1870 European powers were carving off immense hunks of the Ottoman Empire for their territory, including the all-important territory of Egypt, which became a functionally independent state operating under French and later British patronage, and China was brutally humiliated during the Opium Wars. Public resentment of the failure of the Qing Dynasty exploded into the Taiping Rebellion, which would last for over a decade, and which retains to this day the dubious distinction of being the most devastating civil war in the history of humanity. India, meanwhile, had attempted to break free of British overlordship during the 1857 Sepoy Rebellion. The British crushed this insurrection totally and sacked the Mughal capital of Delhi, killing the last emperor and annexing India directly into their territory. The situation only got worse from there. China grew steadily weaker as the government of the Qing dynasty, torn between its grounding in traditionalism and the urgent need to modernize, was paralyzed by indecision. The Ottomans, too, flirted with modernization under a series of reforms called the Tanzimat, but pushback from conservatives combined with a paranoid sultan afraid of undermining his base of support caused these reforms to be aborted. Where serious reform efforts were put into place, more often than not they served to impoverish the local population. Reform costs money, and the first group in line to offer loans to a modernizing state were European bankers. That money, however, came with serious strings attached. If repayment was not prompt, governments could find their creditors demanding that control of the nation's finances be handed over to European experts, or that part of the nation's infrastructure be sold off to foreign firms. Both of these things happened to the Ottoman Empire in China, actually. 
The Ottomans never got financial autonomy back before their empire collapsed, and the Chinese did not get it until 1943, when the Allies realized that the unequal relationship with China made their claims to be fighting in the name of worldwide freedom look a little dubious. And, of course, there were cases of corrupt local governments who did not care about autonomy and wanted only to line their pockets. For example, the Khedivate of Egypt, the independent client state of Great Britain, had a strong export economy based on cotton, but failed to develop the rest of its economic base. As a result, Egypt's ruler, the Khedive, grew massively wealthy, and cotton merchants did pretty well. But the rest of the economy, attempting to use a medieval guild structure to compete against a European corporation system, was rapidly crushed under European imports. Now, this is all something of a digression, you might say, but it is a point worth making. Imperialism really was not beneficial on the whole to Asian societies that affected. Yes, infrastructure improvements were put in place, but the locals did not own them and did not see the profits. Their primary function was to take wealth, in the form of natural resources, labor, what have you, out of the local area and back to the imperial homeland. Modern medicine, likewise, did help prevent deaths from curable diseases, but without concurrent economic growth it also produced huge famines due to insufficient food output to match the expanding population, as well as massive levels of unemployment from stagnant economic growth. This is an important point to make because there are people who try to argue otherwise, but such arguments don't really fit the reality on the ground. Only one nation, as we all know, had been able, or at least seemed able, to navigate the tumultuous waters of European power, Japan. Confronted with the specter of European imperialism, the Japanese had undertaken a massive program of modernization which dwarfed the attempts of any other state in Asia in terms of both scale and thoroughness. As a result, by 1894, Japan was the only Asian state to have some semblance of control over its own destiny, having successfully arranged for the annulment of the unequal treaties forced on it by Western states. This made Japan the subject of tremendous fascination worldwide, as Asian states from Siam, modern Thailand, to Egypt, sent their best and brightest to attempt to discern the secrets of Japanese success. The answers they came away with, by the way, vary tremendously. The reasons that Japan succeeded where so many other countries failed are hotly debated to this day. One of these days I'd like to do an episode on the topic, but first I need to think of how I'm going to make a bunch of kind of dry economics sound interesting to everyone else. Anyway, all this had the effect of building one of the most unusual expatriate communities in the world. The best and brightest from all over Asia came to Tokyo, Yokohama, Osaka, and other Japanese port cities to try to determine the secrets of Japanese success. From China, the doctor-turned-revolutionary Sun Yat-sen, one of the few Chinese figures to remain popular in all the worldwide Chinese communities, both the Communist PRC and the Republic of China and Taiwan, for example, as well as traditionalist pro-Manchu reformers like Liang Qichao, came to Japan to seek support from both the Japanese government and from overseas Chinese merchant communities. The Ottomans also sent several delegations to Japan, including some missionaries who actually did succeed in building a small Japanese Muslim community, which is no mean feat in a country where pork is one of the more common proteins and social drinking is, at least in my experience, basically obligatory. Both traditionalists in the Ottoman court, like the Sultan Abdulhamid II, and reformers of the nascent Young Turk movement, which was in favor of governmental reforms to turn the Ottoman Empire into a constitutional monarchy, 
looked at Japan as a successful Asian state. Abdul Hamid was in favor of Japan's economic modernization. The Young Turks liked its constitutional political system. This actually resulted in a bizarre plan hatched by early pan-Islamists and Islamic nationalists, a plan to attempt to convert the emperor of Japan himself to Islam. The hope was to use the emperor as a figure of Islamic modernity around which Muslims worldwide could unite. This plan had absolutely no chance of ever working, but it does make for a pretty funny idea to think about. Anyway, to sum this all up, in Asia, the traditional major powers in Asian politics were rapidly becoming victims of the West. Only Japan seems to have dodged the bullet, and thus only Japan could provide some basic hope of Asian resistance to Western imperial power. There were, of course, some problems with viewing Japan as the potential savior of Asia, not least among them Japan's own burgeoning Asian empire. However, at this point, most people still accepted the idea that Japan's motives were not necessarily bad. In other words, most people at this time did buy the idea that Japan was simply protecting Korea, and had no bad intentions against either the Koreans or Chinese. If you'll remember, Korea, for example, remained nominally independent until 1910. However, even the most strident defenders of Japan had to face one unpleasant reality. While Japan was rapidly being accepted as an equal of the West in governmental terms, no one believed the Japanese or any other Asian state had the military strength to stand up to the great powers. Even in Japan's moment of triumph over the Qing Dynasty and the Sino-Japanese War, which the Japanese, in a masterful bit of PR rebranding, dubbed the Qing-Japan War to avoid the impression that they were fighting a war against all of China, merely its corrupt overlordship, was marred by Western military strength. When the Russian government decided it wanted some of the territory Japan had acquired, it stepped in to demand Japan return it to China and then scooped up the territory on its own. The Japanese, faced with the possibility of fighting the European power which had crushed Napoleon, felt they had no choice but to accept this outcome nor had any other attempts to stand up to the West via military force been successful. The Sepoy Rebellion in India ended in disaster, and while the Sudanese Islamic leader Muhammad Ahmad, who claimed to be the Islamic messianic figure the Mahdi, enjoyed some early successes fighting the British in Africa in the 1880s, after his death in 1885 his movement was rapidly crushed. In China, attempts to resist the West had all ended in disaster. The two Opium Wars and the Boxer Rebellion in 1900 had all ended in tragedy for China, and each had forced the Qing to hand over more money and power to the West. There had, to be sure, been one victory. In 1895, the Empire of Ethiopia had scored a victory against invading Italian forces at the Battle of Adwa, which brought an end to further Italian intrusions into Ethiopian land, at least until the rise of Mussolini. However, this victory failed to spark much enthusiasm among Asian intellectuals for a few reasons. First, let's be honest, beating Italy in a war isn't quite the same thing as beating France, Germany, the UK, or Russia. Second, the Ethiopian Emperor Menelik II did little to capitalize on his victory, simply insisting the Italians leave him alone. As a result, the victory at Adwa looked more and more like a draw. The Italians had not gotten what they wanted, but they had not had to give anything up either. Third, Ethiopia was not undergoing any attempt at modernization. 
While Ethiopian warriors used Western weaponry, they were still organized in a traditional fashion, and the Ethiopian government made only token efforts at modernization. All in all, the feeling was one of total impotence in the face of Western military power, and it had begun to create an inevitable sense of doom in most Asian intellectual circles. The general feeling was that the West could not be beaten, and that even if a state successfully modernized, it would always be a second-rate power. Then came the Russo-Japanese War. When the conflict began in 1904, with, you'll remember, Japan declaring war on Russia over Russian intrusions into parts of China that Japan considered under its protection, most observers believed the Russian military juggernaut would steamroll Japan with little effort. This wasn't an entirely unwarranted assumption. Russia was a military colossus and still enjoyed a fairly prominent reputation as the nation which had brought Napoleon to his knees. Indeed, this perception became all the more prominent as war went on. Despite a brilliant sneak attack on Russian naval bases in the Chinese city of Lushun, called Port Arthur in English, the Imperial Japanese Navy was unable to score a decisive victory against Russia, and the Imperial Army failed time and time again to decisively beat back the Russian ground forces. Without a speedy victory, the common wisdom went, it was only a matter of time before Russia assembled an overwhelming force and simply crushed the Japanese. This was, in fact, Russia's strategy. The Russian government sent troops streaming into Siberia to fight Japan, though the tremendous distances meant it took months for them to arrive, and Russia's Baltic fleet, based in St. Petersburg, began a long journey around the world to link up with the Pacific fleet and smash the Japanese. In this, Japan did receive something of a reprieve. Its new alliance with the United Kingdom, while it did not extend to direct aid for Japan, did mean that the UK closed the Suez Canal to the Russians. As a result, the Russians had to sail all the way around Africa, adding several extra months of time for Japan to prepare. The man who would be waiting off the shores of Japan when the Russians finally did arrive in May 1905 was a native of Satsuma, the same province from which the great Saigo Takamori came, named Togo Heihachiro. Togo led a very interesting life. When he was only 15 years old in 1863, his hometown of Kagoshima was bombarded by the British in retaliation for the killing of a British merchant by Satsuma Samurai. The experience convinced him with the certainty only a teenager can have that navies were the most important source of national power. When Satsuma began building its own navy the next year, Togo signed up and would serve five years later in the war against the Bakufu. After the end of the Boshin War, Togo was one of the students sent abroad by the government, in his case to the Thames Nautical Training School in London. He would spend seven years there, mocked constantly by his fellow students as, quote, Johnny Chinaman, the distinction between the Chinese and Japanese being somewhat unclear to them. Togo, at this point in his twenties, was not terribly disposed to being mocked, and more often than not responded to insults with his fist. He also graduated second in his class, astonishing many around him who assumed that, not being white, he would naturally fail. He returned to Japan after completing his education, and slowly began the climb up the naval ranks. He made admiral in 1895, and was named commander of the combined Imperial Japanese Navy in 1903. Togo, knowing that the Russians would be steaming in a battle line looking to make it to their port in Vladivostok, decided he had to catch them before they could. In a lucky accident, a Japanese patrol ship called the Shinano Maru 
stumbled on a Russian hospital ship, which failed to identify the Shinanomaru as Japanese, and proceeded to signal the Japanese with semaphore flags to inform it that other Russian warships were nearby. The Shinanomaru then radioed back to the Japanese flagship, called the Mikasa, with the location and number of Russian ships. Togo then launched his attack, crushing the Russians in one swift blow near the island of Tsushima, thus the battle came to be known as the Battle of Tsushima. In the short term, the battle functionally ended the Russo-Japanese War. Though the Russian army was not defeated, it could no longer count on the navy preventing the constant flow of fresh Japanese reinforcements, and thus knew it would be overwhelmed eventually. The defeat also sparked rioting against the Tsarist government, which was already facing serious unrest. Mutinies in the navy compounded the issues, and socialist and communist groups began openly calling for the overthrow of the government, with a young exile named Vladimir Lenin returning to Russia to help lead the revolution but fleeing after its defeat, though of course he would be back 12 years later. The Russians were able to get things under control again, but in many ways the revolution really served as a portent for the coming Bolshevik rising in 1917. Badly weakened, Russia was forced to sue for peace. In a wider sense, though, Tsushima and the Japanese victory signaled something much greater. For the first time ever, an Asian state had defeated a real great power, sorry Italy, and asserted itself as the military equal of the West. Japan's victory, combined with its new alliance with the UK, catapulted it to near the top ranks of the great powers virtually overnight. And the results were electric. Studying in London at the time, a young Dr. Sun Yat-sen, the revolutionary who would be seen as the founder of modern China, went rushing back to Japan to be at the center of these new developments. Stopping in Egypt on his way through the Suez Canal, he was congratulated by all the locals who mistook him for a Japanese citizen. The victory also had a tremendous impact on a young boy at the time totally unknown by the name of Mao Zedong, who was in school when he heard the news. His teacher, who had studied in Japan, was overjoyed and shared his enthusiasm with the class by teaching them some Japanese songs he had learned. Mao later recounted, quote, At the time, I knew and felt the beauty of Japan and felt something of her pride in this victory over Russia. He was inspired by this victory to begin studying how the West worked in order to beat it now that he knew that it was possible. To do so, he took a job at Beijing University, where he would later go to its library and find some books by a man named Karl Marx. In Egypt, the nationalist leader Mustafa Kamil was already a well-known Japanophile. His best-selling book, The Rising Sun, argued that Egypt should essentially copy Japan's reforms to the T. When news of the victory arrived, rioting and demonstrations against the British began in all of Egypt's major cities, with nationalists calling for Kamil's ideas to be put into practice. Huge numbers of Egyptians began flocking to Japan to study. In South Africa, a young lawyer originally from India who had been struggling with the institutional racism of both the South African and wider British regime heard the news and was elated, proclaiming, quote, When everyone in Japan, rich or poor, came to believe in self-respect, the country became free. In the same way, we, the people of India, must feel the spirit of self-respect. The name of that lawyer was Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi and he would take that lesson very much to heart, though in a very different way than the Japanese had. Nor was Gandhi the only Indian nationalist to be inspired by the end of the Russo-Japanese War. 
Rabindranath Tagore, one of his allies and, like Gandhi, a pacifist, would lead a victory parade through the streets of Bengal to celebrate Japan's triumph. India's future first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, received the news during a train trip and described himself as ecstatic. Indeed, it was the victory at Tsushima and the demonstration that Europeans could be beaten, which helped provide the impetus to transform the Indian National Congress from what was functionally a social club into an actual nationalist party. The victory also sparked the formation of nationalist parties in Burma, led by a Buddhist monk named Uotama, and Indonesia, where leadership was split between the secularist Budio Tomo Party, the Islamic Surakat Islam, and the Marxist Communist Party of Indonesia. Nationalists in that country began calling for the same right to control their own destiny the Japanese had. In the Ottoman Empire, the secular young Turks were able to use their victory as leverage to force Sultan Abdulhamid II to reinstate a constitution he had suspended 40 years earlier. In Persia, the Shah Muzaffar al-Din was forced to transform Persia into a constitutional monarchy in much the same way. Meanwhile, a young Ottoman soldier named Mustafa Kemal, who would take control of Turkey after the destruction of the Ottoman Empire in World War I, was also awestruck by the news. Later in life, he wrote that it was this moment which convinced him that Turkey had to go down the same path as Japan, a path he led it down, and which has resulted in Turkey being one of the most modern and powerful states in the Middle East. His close friend, the Turkish novelist Halid al-Deep, was so excited she named her newborn son Togo, after Togo Heihachiro. As you can see, the British viceroy in India, George Curzon, was not exaggerating when he described the news of Tsushima as, quote, like a thunderbolt which reverberated around the east. The impact was not limited to Asia. In the United States, a young African-American lawyer named W.E.B. Dubois, who was rapidly becoming the voice of black life in America, wrote that the Japanese victory had created an eruption of colored pride. So why am I telling you all this? There's very little Japanese history in this episode, to be sure and we're spending a lot of our time on places that are nowhere close to Japan. Well, for one thing, just like we talked about with Japan's Christian century, it's important to remember how interconnected the world is and always has been. A few years back during the Arab Spring, I remember a lot of talk about how social media had enabled this movement to spread like wildfire. Certainly, social media has changed things quite a bit, but it's important to remember that even before the internet, people still read the news. Events on one end of the world could and did spark changes all over the planet, and Tsushima is one very good example of that. It's also important for what Japan would come to symbolize for all these different people. It's really hard for us to think about now, but at the time, the idea of racial and cultural hierarchy was accepted as scientific in the same way that, say, Newtonian mechanics is scientific. It was simply the world as it was. This feeling of hopelessness the idea that European power could never really be resisted, that was shattered by the Japanese victory at Tsushima. All at once it became clear that Asians and people all over the world were just as capable of guiding their own destiny as anyone else. That's the lesson that men as diverse as Gandhi, Mustafa Kemal, and Mao Zedong took away from Tsushima. Some of them used that lesson for good, some for ill, but all of them became convinced that they themselves could be the masters of their own destiny. And all of that was because Japan blazed the way. European imperialism lasted a long time, from the 1500s or so in Asia. 
However, after 400 years, the whole system collapsed in a few decades, with the vast majority of colonies receiving their independence in the 40s and 50s, and the final outpost of European power in Asia, Portuguese Macau, being handed back again for good or ill to the People's Republic of China in 1999. Why did the system fall apart like that? There are quite a few reasons, but a big one has to be that all of a sudden people around Asia became convinced they could tear it down. They looked at Japan, saw what Japan had done, and thought to themselves, they did it, so can we. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week for our second Shogunal biography of Ashkaga Takauji. Oh.